With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. The way I define like being punk myself is that you understand that your accomplishments are not just your accomplishments. You understand that you belong to a community you understand that the world is a system. You understand that the food on your table came from somewhere and you can envision the last hands that touched the food before they you know, entered the package that you just opened. And that it's kind of like you're haunted, like you're haunted by your relationship to all of the people in this, uh, in this world, and um, you act accordingly. That's Carla Cornejo Villavicencio, author of the new book, The Undocumented Americans. I could tell you about Carla, how she's a gifted writer or a Harvard grad, but she'd probably hate all that. That's part of why she wrote this book, to tell her own story in her own words and to complicate a narrative about what it means to live in the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant. This book was a long time coming. Why write it now? Well, it wasn't a long time coming because I didn't want to write it. It was like, I kind of felt like my parents came to this country to for, for me to have a better life um, and not to dwell in the migrancy of my life. Like, I wouldn't have been an immigration lawyer. You know, that's that didn't feel like the proper repayment for my parents' sacrifices. It wasn't far enough away from their migration. And it, I felt like a proper repayment. And that's how, I, that's how I thought of my life. That's how I still think of my life for their migration. Was it something so far enough from their migration that it would make um, them not remember the trauma? 
And so writing about immigration <laughs> was not it. And so I just wrote about music for a long time. And uh, I wanted to be the guy in high fidelity. And I was like, this is me. I started writing this book in 2016 because it, because Trump happened. And um, I thought I was the best person to do it because I didn't have someone like me to guide me as a teenager when I was undocumented in college. I knew stuff was going to get really bad. I had no idea how bad it was going to get. But I just was troubled by the idea that there was just, this was all going to go down and there was nobody like me who was going to say like the things that I ended ended up saying in my book um, because there was a lot of writing about immigrants where we were expected to be patriotic and we were where we were expected to be apologetic and we were expected to prove that we were good citizens and where we were expected to be grateful. And that made me sick. And I was like, we are not, like, I'm not going to let this stand. You write in the introduction to the undocumented Americans that you want to give the reader permission to be punk. When was the first time you gave yourself permission to be punk? I've always been punk. <laughs> I never accepted the, I've never accepted the title of a dreamer even when, before DACA existed, even before I could be like, I just don't feel comfortable with you know, the way this villainizes my parents and and just, you know, transacts in like a, a narrative of innocence. I was just like, like, I don't like dreamer. Like, because you thought it was cheesy. I'm not going to call myself that. People would invite me to things like where I would have to show up in a cap and gown. And I was like, I'm not going to fucking do that. Like Kurt Cobain would not do that. I'm like, I'm punk in a lot of ways. But the way I define like being punk myself is that you understand that your accomplishments are not just your accomplishments. You understand that you belong to a community. You understand that the world is a system. You understand that the food on your table came from somewhere and you can envision the last hands that touched the food before they, you know, entered the package that you just opened. And that it's kind of like you're haunted, like you're haunted by your relationship to all of the people in this, uh, in this world. And um, you act accordingly. And it also means like not giving a shit about what people expect you to act like in order to fulfill a political or a corporate goal or something. So one thing that like has always kind of disturbed me has been like the portmanteau that has the prefix undocu, like undocu joy or like undocu something because that seems like branding. And I just want like undocumented kids to just like, just be individuals to like understand that they can be a part of a community, but understand that they could all, they also don't need to perform anything for mm. anybody, that they don't need to be consumed. And at the same time, you say the dreamers have taken up a disproportionate amount of space in the immigration discourse. Well, that's the media's fault. That's not the dreamers' fault. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. Well, 
the media has been obsessed with them. Like, I understand that, that, like, I'm not villainizing anyone, but any specific person or anything. But, like, you know, of course it makes sense that, you know, kids doing sit-ins and caps and gowns and showing their diplomas and showing their grades. And that's appealing for, to garner sympathy for white middle America. When I was undocumented and I was a kid, I remember being in like eighth grade and my dad would be, was, was like, the DREAM Act is going to pass. And he was so sure of it. And I was 13 years old and I'm 30 now. And the reason why he told me the DREAM Act was going to pass is because Americans love children. And Americans love academically achieving minorities. And um, and I remember in, was it 2016, when we had those marches for comprehensive immigration reform, my dad and I walked with all those immigrants and people didn't go to work. People were risked their, losing their jobs. And we all dressed in white because we thought that would make us look not menacing. That's just branded in my brain. Just uh, all of us marching down, like, just down lower Manhattan and, like, all of these crowds. And we were not afraid. And people had, like, Mexican flags. And then they were like, don't bring your Mexican flags because people are going to be, think that you're, like, you're not patriotic. My dad made these T-shirts that he had bought, like, in bulk in Chinatown that had like the American flag on them. And in the back, he wrote, we are the American dream. He distributed them to his his undocumented coworkers at the restaurant where he worked at. And we wore those t-shirts. And it's like, we are not the American dream because it doesn't exist. And I feel like the media's enraptured with dreamers because dreamers suggest that the American dream does exist, that you come here, you assimilate, you go to college, you join the military, and, you know, the American dream happens. But the camera doesn't stop filming, you know, like after that, it's like, well, what happens? DACA is a temporary solution, even if there was a dream act. Like, what would happen is that these kids, we have to take care of our parents. We have to take care of our elderly who are sick, who have been doing manual labor in many cases for decades with absolutely zero safety net, even though they've been paying taxes. Um, And we have to pay for them out of pocket. And, you know, this idea that, like, the possibility of inheritable wealth, which really is the American dream, is unattainable for us because we have to take care of our elderly. And we have to see that our parents suffer from mental health issues like PTSD, depression, anxiety, alcoholism, addiction, especially our fathers, our grandfathers, our uncles. And um, that's like the behind the scenes of what the dreamers have to deal with. But we don't talk about that. It's interesting because on one hand, I mean, you yourself say, by some measures, you are the American dream, right? You, If you could bottle it up and sell it, you could. But then there is this, what you just articulated, which is this critique of the American dream. And I wonder how you square the two, your own experience fueling that rise 
And then what I think is a very accurate assessment of where we are in this moment. I describe it somewhere as like kind of like in Spanish, there's a world, a word called escampado, which is like when it stops raining just for a little while, like it's raining hard, but then it stops for like five minutes. And like, that's where I am right now in my life. I always feel like, you know, my goal in my life has always been social mobility. I'm a little toy that was made in a factory for like where social mobility was the goal. And that's what I'm, that's my pursuit. And like, I also have other pursuits. I have moral pursuits. I have ethical pursuits, but like my personal pursuit is social mobility in order to take care of my parents, in order to take care of other undocumented immigrants. Right now, the rain for me has escampado, you know, well, the pandemic fucked that up, but like, I'm able to, to take care of my parents right now. Um, like I'm hemorrhaging savings. I'm writing like crazy. I am working 12 hours a day in order to be able to support my parents. But I can, I can, a lot of people can't. And I am very fortunate and I feel very guilty and the guilt eats away at my mental health. And I'm not always healthy about the ways that I cope with it. That is the full portrait of what it looks like to be a successful American dream portrait. Thank God I'm a writer. Thank God I'm not someone who doesn't have control over my own narrative and is not an American dream story like Carmen Miranda, who was not able to take control of their own narrative and who became a fucking caricature. So I have control over my own narrative. And if I ever feel like someone takes control of my narrative, I can take it right back because I'm a writer. Miss Juleka, nice to have you on. Must be a special reason. Yeah, yeah, you know it's a special reason since I like to be behind <laughs> the scenes. <laughs> All right, so when Canto Beauty decided to come on board... I mm-hmm. rushed. Yes, you rushed to volunteer to try the products. <laughs> yes, I know I did. And it's the first time, I know. But I've already been using the coconut curling cream for years, so I figured I wasn't going to miss a chance to try out sister products. I liked the photo you sent me the other day. Your hair looked really good. And that was just after one shampoo and conditioner. My curls were shiny and smooth, man. And my comb was not full of my own hair after I detangled it in the shower. Mm-hmm. You know, even in pictures, it's coming through. Like, your hair looks shiny and hydrated and just so healthy. Thanks. I really appreciate that you let me send you those because I'm really excited (laughs) (laughs) about the change. So how many products are you using all told? Right now, I've got, like, four. So I'm using the shampoo, the conditioner, the leave-in cream, and then can I just tell you what my favorite is? Mm -hmm. The Wave Whip. First of all, that name is everything. But I love how my waves and my curls just are fuller. They're more touchable. They're less frizzy. I mean, I know I sound like an ad, but let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can enjoy the benefits of the Gantu Beauty hair care line, picking up your favorites at Target or ordering from Target.com. Can we talk about mental health? Sure. You write, my diagnoses are borderline personality disorder, major depression, anxiety, and OCD. What prompted you to get evaluated professionally? (laughs) Um, Okay, so those include some misdiagnoses. I could not possibly have all of those things. (laughs) Um, I was 21 and at Yale and had health insurance and felt depressed and went to seek help. 
And I knew that that was the right thing to do. It was not just depression. It was just, um, there were other things, but there were misdiagnoses. Um, Yale Mental Health has not a good track record of working with students of color, queer students, immigrant students with their mental health because of many reasons, including cultural incompetence and a tendency to over-medicate when they should be looking at factors in their patients' lives. So I was not spoken to about being left in Ecuador as a child. I was not spoken to about being undocumented. I was not spoken to about growing up poor. I was not spoken to about my obsession with my father's pain and um, my attachment issues. It became bipolar disorder, even though I'd never experienced a manic episode in my life. What was considered mania was my obsession with work Mm. and that I felt like work was the way out. But how could work not be the way out for a child that since you were six years old was like, work is my way out of the ghetto. So of course I write. I stay up all night writing because that's what I think is going to save me. So most of my psychiatrists and everything were were white. And they were like, you know, and, and remember that I that I had read about all these artists, most of whom had received also probably incorrectly manic depressive diagnoses when it is much more complicated than that. A lot of people are misdiagnosed as bipolar. So I was on a lot of antipsychotics for many years that made me feel sluggish, that made me feel tired. I was just completely a carcass. And it was um, over the past few years that I've, um, I've found some... I found some things that make more sense, like uh, complex trauma, a borderline personality uh, disorder diagnosis that, you know, I've gone to lots of different doctors and some of them disagree with each other. And some of them just don't really believe in diagnoses per se. I have benefited greatly from DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy. I've benefited greatly from CBT, um, you know, Cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy. I have a set of skills. I know what works for me. Um, I have to make the choice. You know, if I am feeling panic, if I am feeling self-harmy, will I reach for something more self-harmy or will I reach for something that I know is a skill? And that is a choice that you still have to make. But I understand And what I try to write in the book is that people who have been separated from their parents as children, there's a lot of us. And it's not just um, immigrants, but it's people who have been separated from their parents because of mass incarceration, because of the war on drugs, because of the opioid crisis, now because of COVID. Um, There's there's just a lot of us. And I think um, mental health resources have to become more financially accessible to people. I was able to pay for my parents' therapy with my book advance. And it was really hard finding Spanish-speaking people to for my parents. But wait, before you even get there, how did how did you convince them to go? 
Did you have to convince them? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, first of all, I'm kind of the head of the household in my house. Um, so um, it like took a lot of convincing, like months of convincing. But basically, I was like, I've done all the research and um, I'm mentally ill. And there is no way that this happened without you guys being unscathed either. They needed it. They knew they needed it. And of course there was like, my father was like, I'm not crazy. And of course my mom was like, I have God. (laughs) I just speak honestly with them. Here's what I told my parents. I told my mom what is just the classic thing. It is like, you have arthritis. You have these other different things going on with your body. You go to the doctor. This is not any different. Also, I have been taking medication for years. What would you do if I stopped taking my medication? You would be upset because I'm not taking care of myself because I owe it to you and I owe it to people I love to take care of myself. You owe it to me, you owe it to your children and you owe it to yourself to take care of yourself. And my mom was just depressed. My mom had just separated from my dad. She knew she was depressed. And I said, be kind to yourself. You've been so good to us. You've been such a good mother. You're such a good person in the congregation. You're such a good worker. Love yourself. Do something good for yourself for the first time in your life. Be kind to yourself. I'm paying for this. Just be kind to yourself. And girl, she didn't want to do therapy. She she said therapy made her anxious. And like, that's okay because therapy sometimes makes me anxious too. But she went to a psychiatrist and I found a very good Latino psychiatrist and he put her on an antidepressant and it helped so much. It helped so much. She is a different person now. She has no, um, no stigma around it. And she's a completely different person. And my dad goes to therapy, or he did before the pandemic, every week. And every week he called me and he was like, thank you, Nana, I feel so much lighter. It's so good to have somebody to talk to. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swathers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swathers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pampers Swathers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. 
at 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. If you're looking for another podcast, check out Offshore from Honolulu Civil Beat. Offshore is an immersive storytelling podcast that tackles some of the most socially relevant issues in America today. This season, they're taking a deep dive into the Hawaiian diaspora. Nearly half of all Native Hawaiians now live outside Hawaii. It's a figure that raises a lot of painful questions about identity, family, and culture. As Hawaii's first people, I'm very concerned. That's why I always consider myself a man without an island. Native Hawaiians abroad can rightfully be understood as economic refugees from an economy that is skewed towards tourism. It's always in my heart to return to my homeland. Native Hawaiian journalist Ku'u Ka'uanoe explores what's causing so many Hawaiians to leave the islands today and tells some amazing and little-known stories about Hawaiians who left long ago. Hawaiians who discovered gold in California, fought in America's Civil War, and changed American music forever. You can listen to Offshore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check it out, offshorepodcast.org. You don't want to miss it. How did you get people to trust you? And how did you get them even more? What I found so compelling about what you did is, like, get them beyond the obvious, beyond the narrative that has been transposed onto them. Um, so one thing that I did is, um, I gave them the elevator pitch for the book that I gave, like, to sell the book to the publishers mm -hmm. and to the editors and to everyone. Like, I gave them the pitch, too. So I'd be like, hi, like, you know, this is who I am. I started writing about music, but then in 2016... I just gave it to them and it took a long time. It was like weird. It was a little uncomfortable, but I gave it to them. And I was like, I'm getting a PhD at Yale and I read a lot of books on migration and I hate them. And this is why I hate them. And I'm undocumented and my parents are undocumented. This is why I write about immigration and I want to retire my parents and I have mental health issues. And I just told them the whole thing. And like, so that was one thing. It helped that I was undocumented a lot. Um, it helped that my parents were undocumented. I often brought up my parents and I was often be like, oh, that reminds me of my dad or that reminds me of my mom. I would ask about their children. There were a lot of things that made me set different, different from them. Obviously, I was privileged in a lot of ways, but there were also things that made us very similar. We were all deportable and we were all scared of similar things. Like sometimes cops would pull up and we would all get scared. I never asked any of my subjects why they came to America because it's none of my fucking business. And like, I think people like undocumented immigrants, when they talk to journalists, are used to people asking them that. It's none of my fucking business why they came to America. They're here. It's hard here. That's enough for me. I don't even care why my parents came to America. It's enough that they've withstood 30 fucking years here. I'm interested in whether the immigrants I talk to 
are taking multivitamins. And like, I think that when I talk to them and I'm like, and they're like, yeah, I've been feeling really faint lately. And I'm like, are you taking Centrum? And I'm like, you should. And like when you when you took on though the responsibility of telling other people's stories as part of this book, how did that sort of responsibility of getting it right manifest for you? It was just my job. And so when I was writing my book, I was like, you know, I have to get this right. And getting this right is not only just getting like every single word that they said right, but was getting like the affect right, getting the mood right, getting the anger right, getting the sadness right, getting like, and I told them, you know what, I I promised everyone in the book, all of my subjects, that I would get Americans to care. And that's like a promise that I couldn't guarantee that I could keep. But I knew that I had a vision for how I could representationally get Americans to care because I think that what my talent is is not necessarily just like, I'm not like a public intellectual. I don't have like brilliant ideas, but I think I can get things that are in circulation as cliches and take them out of that, take them out of circulation and revive them from cliche to something a lot more human, something a lot weirder and something that makes you think or feel something. And I think that that's what my talent is. And I promised them, I said, I promise you that I'm going to tell the story. And if Americans read this book, they will care about your story. And I promised that to all my subjects. And I think they're not really used to journalists being like, I promise that if readers read your story, they will care about you as a human being. But I had enough trust in myself as an undocumented immigrant who people didn't give a shit about to say, I'm going to use my voice to lift up your voice. And I think that's why they trusted me. Thank you, Carla. Thank you. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Latina to Latina is executive produced and owned by Juleka Lantigua-Williams and me, Alicia Menendez. Cedric Wilson is our sound designer. Emma Forbes is our assistant producer. Manuela Bedoya is our intern. We love hearing from you. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. And remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening. And please, please leave a review. It is one of the quickest and easiest ways to help us grow as a community. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.